We here at the Fumbling Four Network take mental health very serious. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. If you don't like talking on the phone, you can text or start an online chat. Once again, the number is 1-800-273-8255. Welcome to the Resident Evil Lorecast, the podcast that will explore the various mediums and lore of the Resident Evil franchise, such as the video games, movies, novels, and more. And here are your hosts, Ariel, Daniel, and Aaron. Got something that might interest you. <laughs> Well, welcome back to the Resident Evil Lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron. And joining me, as always, are our fellow hosts, Ariel. Hi there. And Daniel. Hi. Your highs are always so weird. Technically, it would be I got the high there, I think, but Ariel stole Stole it. Yeah. Well, at any rate, today we're going to be talking about Resident Evil Revelations, BOWs, and Characters. And I'm pretty excited. We have a, we have quite the roster of characters. And I do have an explanation for that when we get to our Easter eggs. But for now, let's jump to our characters. So we got Jill and Chris, which I'm going to skip over because we've talked about them. Mm-hmm. And in between the last game they were in to now was the forming of the BSAA. So there's really not much to cover on them. Yeah, this game was pretty much just the backstory thing for them. So I'm going to jump to Parker Luciani. No blood type. Parker is a member of the Bioterrorism Security Assessment Alliance and former member of the FBC. He has partnered with Jill during the 2005 mission to track down Chris and his partner Jessica, whom the BSAA had lost contact with since they left to investigate El Vetro. He is of Anglo-Italian descent. Parker was originally a member of the FBC tasked with helping out during the Veltro terrorist attacks at Terra Grigia. However, He and his partner, Jessica, barely managed to make it out alive and fled into the FBC building. Unfortunately, the building had already been breached with many hunters. During their trip to the command room, they met the new cadet, Raymond Vester, badly injured by the hunters. So then him and Jill skipper a tugboat into the sea following Chris and Jessica's last known coordinates which led them to Queen Zenobia. So the rest of it is what happens in the game. And that is Parker. Now let's go to Jessica. Jessica Sherawat was a member of the FBC who later became a member of the BSAA. She was secretly a spy working as a triple agent for Tricell all along. So the Terra Grigia panic is basically the same thing I just said with Parker because she was with him during all of that. 
and then the rest happens while on well first it was the Queen Semiramis then Queen Zenobia you know we've already discussed this so not much on her either I do have something for her when we get to Easter eggs though so I have Keith Lumley Keith Lumley is a special operations agent that served under the BSAA's European branch of operations under the call sign Grinder. He was later transferred to the East African branch. Sorry guys, there's not much history with these characters, so next one is Quint Ketchum. <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> Quint Ketchum was an early member of the BSAA. He provided technology support for the organization under the call sign Jackass. <laughs> On and off the battlefield, he and Keith Lumley were a good combination. Many of his own ideas were included in the features of the Genesis scanner. He himself devised and subsequently developed the characteristic headset he wore. Special types of grenades used by BSAA were developed by Quint due to him being fan of sci-fi movie genre, particularly Star Wars. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. This is why Quint's one of my favorite characters in this game. I <laughs> Prior to this, I did not know he was a fan of Star Wars. So, the next one is Clive R. O'Brien. Clive R. O'Brien was the director of the BSAA, which, at the time of his directorship, was a private, non-governmental organization tackling biohazard incidents, bioterrorists, and biological weapons. He operated under the radio call sign of Forkball. Where do they get these names from? <laughs> These are the greatest call signs ever. Don't take this away from me. <laughs> right. Clive O'Brien was the director, as I just said, during the incident known as the Terragrisia Panic. At the time, the BSAA was a small NGO with limited resources, so although O'Brien was on the ground during the incident, it was mostly as a European dispatch third-party observer. While the Federal Bioterrorism Commission took the lead on the rescue efforts. And that is that on Clive R. O'Brien. Not quite sure what the R stands for. Maybe Robert or Richard? Or Randall? I don't know. <laughs> Next is Raymond Vester. Raymond Vester was an American soldier and later spy. From 2004 to 5, he was part of the Federal Bioterrorism Commission and saw action in the Terragrisia Panic. The discovery of a link between the FBC's Commissioner Morgan Lansdale and the terrorist group El Veltro led to Raymond switching allegiances to the Bioterrorism Security Assessment Alliance, continuing as an FBC operative for the next year in order to gather information on Lansdale's activities. Following Lansdale's arrest after the Queen Zenobia incident, Vester began an association with Tricell as a spy. And that is that on him. Next is Morgan Lansdale. 
Commissioner Morgan Lansdale was the head of FBC until 2005. He went by the nickname of Silver Fox. He must have been a good-looking guy. Lansdale was engaged in foreign intelligence activities for many years, even before he was head of the FBC. He was also responsible for the destruction of Terra Grigia through the use of the Regia Solis during the infamous Terra Grigia Panic. And that is that on our Silver Fox. Next, we have Jack Norman. Dr. Jack Norman was a university lecturer and founder of the organization Il Veltro. Calm and intelligent rather than boastful, Dr. Norman projected an air of charisma which gave many people sympathy for his movement, despite its increasingly aggressive acts, which ended in the Terrigrage Panic. Alongside his career as a teacher, Norman was the founder of Il Veltro, a protest movement he controlled as a personality cult consisting largely of students of his. Believing that the earth had become decadent and sinful, Norman's growth became increasingly prone to extremism. It was this conduct which earned his approach from FBC, Morgan Lansdale. And that's what I have on him. So basically, he's just a cult leader. <laughs> so next I'm gonna talk about Hunk. Ooh yeah. Hunk is the code name of an umbrella security service operator who was the leader of the ill-fated Alpha team in the employment of Umbrella. Cold, silent, and devoid of emotion, he is ruthless. He and the UBCS Sergeant Nikolai Zinoviev were considered to be rivals. Almost nothing is known about Hunk's history, even his real name. The earliest piece of information relating to him was that he received training at the Military Training Center on Rockford Island in 1996. In only two years, Hunk proceeded to carry out a large number of successful operations, many of which he was the only survivor. This earned him the nickname Grim Reaper. And that's all we get on Hunk. Yeah, he's a, um, shall we say, a ghost in the background. I bet he's a Hunk. <laughs> I really hope we get more info on him. I'm hoping we get a game on him or including him extensively because I really feel like he deserves his own background at this point. You get none. So the last one I have to cover is Rachel Foley. She was an agent working for the United States federal government's anti-bioterrorism task force, FBC. She and her partner, Raymond Vester, were sent into the Queen Zenobia to investigate. That's all I got on her. Not much. Sorry, listeners. Wish I had more. But that is it on the characters. Well, though it's not a lot of info, I can say that when we get to the Easter egg section of this episode, a lot of this lack of info will be explained heavily. So don't 
get too disappointed. There's a specific reason why there wasn't a lot of info on these characters. But with all that being said, I think it's time for us to cut to a mid break. Well, here we are in the middle of the show. And you know what time it is, Ariel? What time is it? It's middle break. No, it's time to thank our patrons. So I would like to give a huge shout out to our official patron, Anthony Bellotti, our all-access patrons, Remington Cloutier and Chris Slate, and our VIP patrons, which will be joining us next episode, Wolfslore and Saint. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And uh, I believe we have some cool bonus episodes planned for here in the future very soon. Um, Ariel, do you want to give a little teaser for one of those bonus episodes? It was great. <laughs> okay. No, uh, in all seriousness, we do this every episode, but I feel like it needs to be said. Thank you to our patrons. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to those in the Discord that are always so kind, so nice. Always, always have nice things to say. Thank you for everybody who leaves any sort of reviews and follows. And all of this helps us immensely. And we cannot thank you enough. So, thank you. Y'all are great. Thanks. (laughs) And if you ever need or want or both an ocarina... Check out our Legend of Zelda lore cast. Mm-hmm. You will get a promo code for 10% off of STL Ocarinas. Yes, because they sponsor the podcast. It's pretty cool. Yes. So, at any rate, it's time to talk some RE stuff. Daniel, what do you got for us this week? Merchandise, as always. I should have said I had an article just to fool you. Don't do that. You're going to throw everyone out of whack. We'll see. <laughs> so on the website, merchoid.com, there is currently a limited edition 24 karat gold and 0.999 silver plated stars badge medallion. Ooh. Currently, and it does say limited, or at least the website does. It keeps saying stock is low. Yeah. So it means buy one, people, for me as well. Uh, <laughs> currently runs $39.99. Says price includes all tax and shipping. It says perfect gift to celebrate 25 years of survival horror. The medallion measures 90 millimeters by 65 millimeters and has the Resident Evil logo on the reverse and is precious metal plated with both 24 karat gold and the .999 silver, along with blue enamel plating. It comes individually numbered and a display stand comes with it as well. Ooh. And it says limited to only 1,996 worldwide the year Resident Evil was unleashed. <laughs> that's pretty cool. So if you want to get that that's on Merchoid.com and we'll have it in the show notes and wherever else you get your merchandise ideas from us. Ariel what do you got for us this week? Uh, advertisement for our other podcast. <laughs> now, I read an article. Uh, as you always do. Stop taking my line. <laughs> and it is on GameSpot. 
and the title is Resident Evil Xbox Series XS and PS5 versions let you keep your old saves. So, like I talked about last week, the remakes of 2 and 3 as well as Resident Evil 7 are going to the Xbox Series X and S and PS5. But now, you get to keep your old saves. Assuming you don't want to start the entire journey from scratch. Capcom shared the news on Twitter today, which today is Tuesday. Via the official Resident Evil account, saying both the PS4 and Xbox One versions saves over to their respective upgraded versions, so you'll have to stay in the same console family to move the saves. But it's still pretty awesome. So, you know, if you've purchased all those cool unlimited ammo guns or what have you, you can carry it over to the upgrade. Mm-hmm. No, that is pretty nice because I, I get quite infuriated when every time you went to upgrade these old games and they'd remake them HD or, you know, all this stuff, you'd go to upgrade, get the new version, and then you have to start from scratch. It's quite irritating. Yeah. It really is. So, that's all you have. I also have merch, Daniel. <laughs> Not as good as mine. I don't know. So my merch comes to us from none other than Etsy. And this comes from Homework Factory. So <clears throat> this is keys inspired by the Spencer Mansion set. And it's really cool because it's the keys that you can get in the Spencer Mansion. But in the background, and it's all framed and it's nice. In the background is actually the map of the Spencer Mansion that looks like it's hand drawn. It is really cool. Right now online, it says there's only one available left. However, I'm sure that there will be more reproductions of it. But just in case, you might want to hurry out and grab it. <laughs> uh, the going price is $68.86. So $68.86. I like how they just reversed it. Always with a weird <laughs> change. Um, they This creator also does a couple other ones, uh, different key sets. Another, they do another one that is the RPD key set and it also has the RPD map. They've got a couple of them. So go check out Homework Factory on Etsy and check out them keys. And the link for this will be in the show notes. I have the RPD keys but it doesn't have the cool map in the background. Mm, is that a hint? Sure. <laughs> so, with all that being said, let's jump into the end of the episode. And we are back at the end of the episode. And we're ready to talk some BOWs, Daniel. Are you ready for them? I'm ready for them. A lot of odd names for these. (laughs) So, the first one I'm going to cover is the Dragonazo. It resembles a shellfish and was at least three times the height of Jill Valentine and Parker Luciani. Hopefully not stacked together. (laughs) Most of its body is covered in a hard shell immune to gunfire, but it has multiple patches of exposed flesh with 
which could be shot to inflict damage. Its most prominent feature is a gigantic arm which served as its main offensive weapon. And telling everybody, just go look at this thing. It is very grotesque. It's a it's a BOW C worthy <laughs> is what it is. And that's what I have on that BOW. So the next BOW is the Farfarello. As a result of being administered the T-Abyss virus, the Farfarello came to have the ability to mimic their surroundings and become transparent similar to a group of aquatic organisms. However, because they were exposed to multiple viruses, both the T-Virus and T-Abyss, they became so aggressive that they were even more difficult to control than a regular hunter. They do not have much on that as well. So the next BOW is the Fenrir, which are basically like the Cerberus. They're dogs which have been zombified from the T-Abyss virus. Fenrir have been seen in two forms, those with black fur and those with white fur. Like the zombie dogs, Fenris suffers from severe necrosis to the point where there are gaping holes in their bodies, exposing flesh and bones. They also differed in size, with the gray ones being smaller than the black ones, which were larger. That's what I have on the Fenrir. The Gyozo are created by directly infecting ordinary fish with T-Virus. Their appearance strongly resembles the deep sea fish that originally carried the Abyss virus, the progenitor of the T Abyss virus. Because of the virus's influence, Iozos had large appetites, sharp teeth, and strong jaws. A school of these ferocious BOWs can eat through large mammals, bones and all, in a matter of seconds, similar to the famous, but mostly untrue, aggression of piranhas. Even worse, the Iozo is now somewhat amphibious, able to move and attack on land to a certain extent. However, they are most effective in their natural aquatic environment. So, Umbrella just made these piranha-like fish now able to potentially get on the land. Yeah, no, thank you. Oh, you don't want to meet a gyozo? A school of them? No. That name almost makes me mad because it's close to gyoza, and I love gyoza. Not close enough. You know what I love? Sushi. I know Arrow also loves the name of this next one, the Globster. <laughs> I do. <laughs> the Globsters appear as an amorphous blob with pinkish skin and a large toothy mouth on their underside. Despite the fact that they are created from humans, nothing resembling a human is left. They have no discernible eyes, ears, nose, arms, or legs. They move on land by undulating their body, albeit rather slowly. Underwater, however, they move much more quicker and more gracefully. They're capable of swimming faster than a human, as seen when the player is in the submerged sections of the Queen Dido. They take additional damage when shot in their vulnerable mouth tissue. They expose their mouths while moving and attacking. Underwater, they are deadly. They will instantly kill any player that is in their sight by swallowing them. I would almost imagine, just by the name, it's some type of blob lobster, but it's not. Lobster. Exactly. Revelations also has its own variant of the hunter. There were a clone species that was genetically engineered by an unknown organization as bioweapons to be sold to terrorists. They are similar to umbrellas, but they are a little different. 
They closely resemble the AM2 models, but are noticeably larger and slower. However, they are still annoyingly fast and hop around sideways to dodge incoming fire. So if a regular hunter wasn't already bad enough, one that can dodge your fire is even better. The next BOW is the Malakota. A fully grown Malakota appears as a long worm covered in tumorous growths. It has a circular maw ringed with long, thin teeth. The maw is accented by two large mandibles that hang off the head. It lacks eyes with only smooth plates covering the top of its head. Its tail ends in another orifice ringed with similar looking teeth. It can extend to great lengths and prove power powerful enough to crush a helicopter without noticeable recoil damage. In Revelations, a large number of Malakotas inhabit what is surmised to be an infected whale. The creature's appearance is grotesque, grotesquely modified from any known living whale, even sharing some physical attributes with shellfish. Malakota whale host is massive, easily swallowing up most of the foredeck on the Queen Zenobia. It has a dark green color with a large tear down its spinal column exposing several deformed vertebrae. The head tapers from the body and features a large mouth reminiscent of a nervous saurian with large irregular teeth and a strange white growth that functions as a weak point. The creature also seems to lack eyes. The creature's body ends in what appears to be a myriad small claws that make a singular foot. These claws are used for grasping the deck of the Zenobia during the battle. It has what appears to be a flat, rounded tail that covers the front of the ship. And that is what I have on the Malakota B.O.W. The next one is the Ooze. Researchers gave the name Ooze as their bodies secreted a slimy substance which prevented them from drying up. Due to their innate ability to constantly produce this ooze, it would give them flexibility to slip through various cracks or gaps to chase prey. Appearance-wise, these creatures retain a relatively human form that resemble bloated corpses. The T. abyss virus has mutated mainly the forelimbs and head of the victim. The head of the creature splits halfway where the victim's nose would be to reveal its leech-like tongue. Retracted inside this esophagus, which is lined with small, sharp teeth used for cutting into victims and draining them of their fluid. Their movement pattern is awkward and unpredictable due to their feet mutating into crooked stumps. The reason for this is unknown, but theorized it could be to aid in maneuvering through vents in small spaces. This gives them an odd shuffling gait as they walk forward. Despite this oddity, they make use of the falling forward momentum to pick up speed when assaulting prey. Typically, male victims of the T. abyss virus become oozes, while female victims who possess XX chromosomes become, instead become sea creepers. There are a couple different variants of the ooze. The standard is the main one that I listed. You also have the pincer version. This ooze possesses long claw-like arms. They're folded like razor blades and extend when attacking any players. Tricorn. These develop a bizarre arm in the shape of a crossbow which shoots sharp organic projectiles. The chunk is a grotesque lump of meat that has no hands or arms. This ooze's only method of attack is to self-destruct walking up to a victim and then somehow causing their bodies to explode violently. 
Whatever process causes this explosion is volatile and the chunk will also explode when killed by the player. Ironically, it can also damage other enemies as well. Not really good for friends then. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's an ooze that you don't bring to a party. Nah, nah, nah. That is what I have on the ooze. The Skag Dead, which this thing is another grotesque looking creature if you want to look this up. The Skag Dead is created when the T Abyss virus undergoes a secondary mutation within a human host body. The, this mutation occurs when the victim has a stronger than normal resistance to the virus, slowing its spread. The result is this grotesque, disproportionate body, characteristic of a Skag Dead. This transformation occurs once in a roughly this transformation occurs once in roughly a thousand hosts. Skagdeads appear as a huge, fleshy, lumbering creature with pillar-like legs. They are slightly taller than an average human, but much bulkier. Their coloration is mostly gray, save for a flesh-colored patch where the remnants of the original human host remains. The host head is effectively displaced by a massive fang maul, which opens vertically. In some cases, the host head can repeat some words and phrases, this is dependent on the extent of the mutations on the head. For example, the comms officer on the Queen Zenobia, his human half appeared to be conscious as it said, Stop it, I'm human, when attacked. Get away, there are monsters here. Don't run from me, I'm human, among other things. <laughs> this is truly terrifying. This also indicates that the host is still slightly aware of its surroundings, but oddly unaware of its fate. The left arm of the creature remains virtually unchanged from a regular human's, albeit immense, albeit emaciated and with an additional flipper-like appendage directly beneath it. On the other hand, the Skagdead's right arm has become grotesquely mutated. It has become extensively muscular, though obscured by folds of flesh and tipped with an organic mimicry of a buzzsaw. This appendage can be swung multiple times in quick succession, mimicking the attacks of a chainsaw man, and serves as a Skagdad's primary means of attack. They are also capable of vomiting up clam-like objects that serve as bear traps. <laughs> so there's not enough terrifying about this thing beforehand. Let's just add chainsaw motion action and clam bear traps. Yes. Basically, those are meant to stall the player so they can get close and attack. But you can easily destroy the traps with the bullet. And that is what I have on the Skag Dead. And a couple more, everybody. Next, I have the Scarmiglione. It's a hybrid species created through the splicing of shark DNA into the human genome through the use of T abyss as a catalyst. And these things look terrible as well. Externally, the Scarmiglione is a human bipedal creature. The shoulders and neck are protected by a later cartilage, which protects it as armor. The right arm is developed in a long, into a long spear-like implement with thorns on, while the left arm has bloated from muscle growth and can be used as a shield. Basically, it's a human shark knight. So it's a street shark knight. It, it doesn't look <laughs> as cool and doesn't have a van. This is true. This is all true. And the last one I have 
is the variant of the ooze is the sea creeper. This, this special mutation tends to happen when a human female body gets infected, whereas human males tend to turn into ooze. Creation of sea creepers would be a tea abyss adapting the host bodies to its surroundings, noticeably where sea creepers are found in large bodies of water. In a special case where one female infected with TBS was nowhere near a body of water, the individual became a rare type of ooze while retaining a certain slight form. The carapace resembles a woman's long hair, which covers the entire body, reducing friction and allowing them to move freely underwater. It enables them to creep around the water silently. As these monsters approach their targets, they spread their six human-like arms, which they use to hold their prey while they bite into them. Yummy, yummy. So it sounds like the sea creepers were a better upgrade than the oozes. <laughs> and that is all I have on that B.O.W. and the B.O.W.s. So a lot of info to take in on these B.O.W.s. But to be fair, this is the first game where we've had a whole new cast of B.O.W.s. And mostly aquatic based ones. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason behind that, which leads me, nice segue, into our Easter eggs. So, the first Easter egg I want to talk about before we get into why the ocean is, did you all know that the original release on the 3DS, the game cases were misspelled? I did not. Instead of saying Resident Evil Revelations, the original game cases said Resident Evil Revelations. I bet somebody got in trouble for that. Oh, I bet. (laughs) I thought that was just a little gee whiz. Uh, But the original reason why they decided to go with water in this game, there's a couple reasons. Number one, the ocean and deep water. A lot of people have a resonating fear with this because it's the fear of the unknown. And this game was specifically built to bring the RE series back to horror but also modernize the gameplay styles. And this is why, and I'm going to get into now, why our characters don't have a massive backstory. It's because all of these characters and this entire storyline, when they went through the development phases to figure out what would work best, they created this game to model American TV shows soap operas and action films I don't know if I like this direction (laughs) well you did when you played it (laughs) no they did this because they saw that it would increase their market value in North America if they basically modeled the same thing that you know generates billions and millions of dollars every year and it worked because we ate it up like crazy but They, instead of giving all the characters in-depth backstories like they did before, they gave them quirks and personalities specific to the characters. Like, for example, they gave Keith the the personality of, like, the man's man. Like, he's an expert weapon. He's a weapons expert. He's a combat expert. He's on par with Jill and Chris. Like, he is a badass. But he's cocky. So they gave him that kind of personality. Another interesting fact about him is, did you know he was actually inspired? His character model was inspired by South Park? No, I did not. In his winter costume, 
it is actually quoted from the creator of this character model because of his hood. His hood is modeled after Kenny's from South Park. I'm not going to go there. (laughs) Another character quirk was Quint was the nerdy guy. He was built specifically to compliment Keith. He was the nerdy guy. He was the tech guy. And one of his notable traits was not only was he a sci-fi buff like Ariel said earlier, but he is a horror movie buff. And that's why he enjoyed his time during this game. Um, he was His original design was more of like a Chris-esque design, but the developers were like, no, we want an everyday man design. That's why his final design that we see in the game is that he's got, you know, a little bit of a beer gut. He's bald and he's got a bigger head than any of the characters in the cast. And this is because the developer said we want him to have a bigger head than everyone else to display that he is more knowledgeable. I do not understand why (laughs) it worked again. These things worked. You you couldn't look at Quentin go. No, he's the dumb guy. No, he was the smart guy. He was the smart guy. Uh, Clive was developed. He was developed originally as your like 1920s detective. And they were like, no, rework the model, make him likable. So the design team went back into several different designs. I mean, we're talking several designs until they reached a likable design. And this was because the final product, they wanted it to be an absolute surprise twist when he revealed himself to be the bad guy. They wanted you to fall in love with him so that you were absolutely mortified and surprised and shocked when he revealed himself to be the bad guy. Another interesting fact about Clive, because we got to give props here. He was voiced by none other than Paul Eating, who also famously voiced the Colonel from the Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid series. And one of his more recent voice acting gigs that you may know him from was Grandpa Max from the Ben 10 series. So there's a G whiz. And we mentioned last episode that a lot of voice actors weren't credited in this game. And it's been discovered that that was due to possible union issues. We don't know what those issues are, but it was alleviated by several voice actors that it had to something to do with the union representatives. But anyway, let's get into some Easter eggs and did you knows. So the beta was actually different than the final released version. The game originally was supposed to feature zombies and these zombies can be found into some of the data mining. However, it was changed shortly after because they wanted to give it a different vibe. Jill and Chris were originally supposed to be together, which we saw in the original beta version. But they again, another change happened. Hank was supposed to be one of the original main bad guys, but it was changed last minute to Viltro. Again, something different from the original beta. And Chris was originally supposed to have a full fledged doppelganger in this game, which was featured in the beta but then was changed at the last minute to be the dummy that you find. 
which I'm a little disappointed by that. I would have loved to fight a doppelganger Chris, even if he can punch boulders. It's probably better at punching boulders. <laughs> so another couple tidbits that were found through data mining and through artwork pieces was there were a lot of unused monsters. Uh, one of the unused monsters that I want to focus on, however, it looks like a tyrant variant. And the clothing that is on this character and artwork model is none other than Raymond's clothing. And it was suggested that it was a last minute change to the Rachel Ooze. There was also supposed to be a Yeti who turned transparent, which I would have loved to seen. And there's supposed to be a crawfish bad guy. Could you imagine fighting a giant crawfish? <laughs> so some actual Easter eggs in the game. There is a Trish soda machine that you can find. And this is a direct reference to Trish from the Devil May Cry series. There is, if you, when you're underwater and you're exploring, you can look on the outside of the ship and you will see normal sharks outside the ship. And these are the only non-mutated creatures in the game. The next Easter egg we have is if you look at pictures on the wall, they show different locations in the RE5 series to include the underground flowers. <laughs> the Magnum Pale Rider that you can unlock is a direct reference to the Clint Eastwood movie by the same name. And the last Easter egg, direct Easter egg that we have is that when you scan different characters in the game, they each have different dialogue that they'll give you. And some of it is hilarious. So if you have the opportunity to go back and play through this, scan all those characters because there are some hilarious dialogues. So I got a couple more G Wiz infos and some of these are pretty interesting. Lady Hunk was originally a fun sketch by one of the team members, but the entire team fell in love with the sketch so much that they had to include it in the game. So that's why we got a Lady Hunk costume in this game. Rachel was originally supposed to be just a dead body on the ground that you could get a key from. But another, it's yet again, another sketch and artistic design that the team fell in absolute love with and said, nope, Rachel's going to be a character. So she is supposed to be your typical horror trope. The one that gets killed? Not only the one that gets killed, but the one that expresses the amount of horror that is going on in this game and then inevitably dies. In this case, she gets turned, but you know. Um, there was a DVD released in Japan and only in Japan that was called the Revelations Report. And it featured Jessica being interviewed by none other than Exela Gione from the RE5 series. During the interview, she relays, Jessica relays a lot of background info on Chris and Jill suggesting that she did her homework on them. Another couple tidbits that didn't quite make it into the game was Chris almost had a handlebar mustache in his sailor costume because it was specifically built for fan service. Could you imagine a clone 
of Chris with the handlebar mustache. <laughs> it's going into the typical cartoon villain trope. Yeah. <laughs> so the last one we have here is Jill's wetsuit was originally inspired by none other than the Gundam Titan series. Titan color and design, which is pretty cool to think about. So that is all I have for Easter eggs and interesting G-Wiz facts about this game. It's a lot of, of oddities. It is a lot of oddities. And the, honestly, when you look through the artwork and some of like the data mined information, there's other tidbits like originally the scanner was going to be modeled into a pair of like visor glasses. But they scrapped the idea last minute because of unknown reasons. And the monsters that they didn't utilize are extensive. Like, there's, there's a lot of monsters they didn't utilize. Uh, mostly because they were trying to go with an underwater sea kind of theme and didn't really want to mess that up, especially with a Yeti. I mean, come on. <laughs> underwater Yeti. Underwater Yeti. So, that's it for this episode. So you guys know what's next. We need our reviews. So Ariel, what do you got for a review? I give this a five globsters out of five. <laughs> Changing your review on us. Just for this game, because I love that name. <laughs> it. I loved the storyline. Mm -hmm. I loved playing the game. About the, really the only gripe I had about this was the back and forth between the different characters, but that wasn't enough for me to go down on my rating. Mm. I just loved it. it. It was hard in a lot of places. <laughs> yeah. But now, definitely, I absolutely love Revelations 1. It is a really good game. I have to agree with you on that. But before we get to my review, Daniel, what do you got? So I think I'll give it five out of five Rebecca's, not Globsters. Oh. You should have done the freaking weird dragon Namika thing. <laughs> <laughs> the Dragagazo? That one. The Dragon Namika. I like it. That's what we're calling it from now on. It's the Dragon Namika. I'm going to go with the story was good, but I like that they went into a new field with a bunch of new creatures based on the environment mm -hmm. that it was then taking place. Yeah, I did. It, it was, it was, it was felt different all around and I liked that. Of course, I hate deep water, so <laughs> I would not want to be actually dealing with this in person. Uh, no. So... I guess it's up to me. And I'm going to have to give this five out of five lady hunks. Because we got to change it up. We got to change it up for this game. Um, I It was hard for me to give this a solid five out of five for a couple reasons that you mentioned, Ariel. There were a lot of parts that were extremely challenging. However, I don't think that's enough to bring it down on scale. It was the reintroduction of the RE series back into a horror feel. And what better way than to make you feel like you're completely helpless in certain scenarios. So since they were directly going for that kind of vibe, they nailed it. 
in my opinion. They really did nail it. And I didn't like the fact that you swap back and forth between characters, like you said, too. But again, I don't think it took too much away from the game. So, yeah. Definitely go out and play it, listeners. (laughs) Well, with all that being said, we're at the end of the episode. So, after we have our patron episode next week, what are we covering the following week? Resident Evil 5. Six. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel got it taken away. Yes. After our patron chat, we will start covering none other than Resident Evil 5. Six. (laughs) So, until next time, thank you all for listening. Tune in next week. Bye. Bye, Resident Evil 5 next. After the patron. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Resident Evil Lurecast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a comment and review. If you want to keep chatting with us about all things Resident Evil, you can find us on the Robots Radio Discord. You can also chat with us at RELurecast on Twitter. Till next time, stay safe out there. And remember, we might have something that might interest you, stranger. Hi, welcome to Three Count Thoughts. Let me introduce the crew real quick. Hi, I'm Maverick Stone. I'm Romer. And I'm Jaxus. Join us as we talk all things wrestling. Each week, we'll take a topic from the wrestling world, knock it around a bit, and then go over the week in wrestling from a strictly fan perspective. We can be found on all major podcast catchers. We can also be found at Three Count Thoughts on both YouTube and Twitter. Or you can send us an email using threecountthoughts at gmail.com. Okay, are you ready? Ring the bell.